Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big subject shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. I recently went to a bit of a family get-together. It was a family standard affair, with the barbecue slightly overcooking all the meat and the music playlist worthy of a gas station's discount section. The party consisted of about 20 of us, ranging from toddlers to grandparents. Come mealtime, the lot of us shuffle on from our various spots around the house and backyard and grab an overly ambitious plate of food and head out to the table set up at the back. And without any planning or directions given, I watched people sort themselves into various tables. The very young kids sat around the smallest table talking Minecraft and Fortnite, the 20 and 30 year olds congregating around the second table exchanging stories of travel and jobs, and at the main table sat the parents and grandparents, the people who had graciously hosted the party, paid for the food, and dictated the schedule for the afternoon's activities. As much as it was a nice afternoon, the reason I bring this up is this system of tables actually perfectly illustrates the concepts of great, regional, and minor powers. Little 10-year-old Mark with his top-of-the-line iPad may be the king of his small table, but holds little influence over the middle or big tables. And as much as the middle table would love to change the music away from the who's who of 1983, it's not their house. That's for the people at the big table to decide. That's the table where the great powers sit. If we put my family's gathering into a geopolitical setting today, at the smallest table would be nations like Angola, Tajikistan, and Cambodia. Nations who often rely on others financially and in security terms. Those whose national trajectories are often shaped by those sitting at the other tables. In the middle table are your regional powers, your India, Brazil, Australia kind of guys. Countries who have a good sway over parts of their respective regions, but cannot shape the direction of the entire world, and must work within the framework laid out by the great powers sitting at the biggest table. The great powers table is where many nations aspire to sit, and where some, like Spain, have sat in the past. But today, there are far fewer seats than there are applicants. At this table, which until the 90s only sat the US and the Soviets, now seats the US, China, and the EU. And depending on who you ask, possibly Russia. China and the US are assured of their seats here at the Great Powers table, but the EU, that's a bit of an interesting one. Its claim to be seated here at the table is not nearly as solid as the other two. You see, the EU together and combined would have a GDP larger than that of the US or China. It would be a powerhouse in manufacturing, and it would be a guaranteed force to be reckoned with. But the EU is not united. In fact, it was only a couple of years ago that it lost the UK. And many fear that if a French, Polish, or Italian election were to go the wrong way, we may see these nations leave the bloc, beginning a race between some of these nations to make sure they aren't the last ones out holding the bag. That's a pretty big fault line built into the EU's foundational power structure. 
Most of the people in the EU know that without EU unity, their seat at the table would be disingenuous. Not Denmark, nor France, nor Italy could argue that it has as much global influence and power as the US or China. And therefore the EU broken apart, well, to the middle table they go. To watch on from a distance as the bigger table shapes the global trends without them. So what should the EU do? Settle in for a comfortable position as a collection of middle powers? Or double down on the European project and prove their worthiness of being seated at the great powers table? Because as much as they do have the GDP and population to warrant Beijing and Washington's mutual respect, when it comes to military capabilities, the EU is a pretty distant third. A continent made up of armies like a patchwork quilt system, using weapons and equipment from the US, the Europeans, and even remnants of the old USSR. So should Europe look to build a united European army, one that doesn't take US protection as an eternal guarantee, one that can solve regional crises on its own, and one that doesn't rely on other continents for help? That's the question we're asking today. What is the feasibility of a European army? Why hasn't the EU gone down this road yet? And how the re-emergence of an aggressive Russia on Europe's eastern flank can change the continent's decades of military dependence doctrines. And to try and help us understand the complexities of this question, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. United we stand, divided we fall. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. So the sad news is that a... A major world power has decided to use its military force to invade and subjugate another European nation. And so we watch the tragedy of uh, Mr. Putin's gambit in Ukraine. And that's the sad news. If there are any good results from this, it is, I believe, an awakening of several nations in Europe about their requirement for defense and how they contribute to European defense as well as their own. Philip Breedlove is a retired four-star U.S. General of the United States Air Force. And as well as being highly decorated, he's also the former Supreme Allied Commander for NATO forces, as well as Supreme Allied Commander of European forces. Phil was also the former commander of U.S. European Command, the U.S. Air Forces in Europe and Air Forces in Africa, as well as the Vice Chief of Staff for the Air Force and Assistant Chief of Staff for Air Operations. We are thrilled to have him join us today. And probably the most startling is is how uh, big the turnaround has been in Germany. 
a country I love. I've lived there five times. Two of my daughters are born there. And I served along uh, the Bundesliga in the early 80s and in the 90s and the 20s uh, as I uh, grew up through eight assignments in Europe. And now we see that the new coalition leading Germany has uh, reimagined their requirement for their own defense and contributing to European defense. And I think they sort of stand for your question. And that is that Europe is now seeing the true colors of Mr. Putin. There have been a lot of Putin apologists along the way. And now I think there won't be so many. The concept of united EU army has been discussed since before the Treaty of Rome. We've seen the EU expand and take on so many other roles throughout Europe. So why is this aspect of a combined armed forces never taken off? What's stopping Europe taking the initiative here? Is the pushback against it internal or is it factors like NATO and the US who are pushing back against the united European army? Well, a lot of people are surprised about how I talk about the European army. A European army under um, the EU is not a challenge to me. People think that I would be incensed because it's a, a challenge to NATO. I see it as exactly the opposite. Anything that the EU does to increase its military capabilities and capacities, with a couple of caveats that I'll mention in a minute, but anything they do is also going to benefit NATO. Remember that over two dozen of these countries are also in NATO. So if they increase their military capability and readiness, it also increases NATO's capability and residence. After saying that, I always add the same caveat. And that is what we don't need is an EU military formation that starts creating redundancies of what NATO already has. We don't need a bunch of new headquarters for four stars. That's easy and that's important for me to say as a four star. We don't need buildings and mortar and, and new formations and, and so forth. But what we do need is an army that has capability. And then um, I see the marrying of NATO capabilities and EU capabilities as the future. If you look at what we did on the coast of Somalia, it was truly what the EU brought to the NATO's afloat command and control and firepower and what the EU brought to go ashore uh, that gave no sanctuary to the pirates and really ended it. And if you look today in Bosnia-Herzegovina, you've got an EU force but it is commanded by the desacker of NATO because NATO has the intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance, command and control, logistics, all those things that the EU struggles with, NATO has in strength. And so we marry these two forces together and we come up with really good stuff. So I am not one of these people who gets threatened by an EU army. And I think that the EU army should proceed and that we in the West should look at how we best marry NATO and the EU together to bring out their specific strengths. So to get a better idea on how this would all work, let's take a country like Slovakia, whose army consists of three brigades. Would you have NATO command two of those and the EU command one, or would you have NATO command all of them, but they're ministered by the EU? 
How do you envision an EU army working on paper when it comes to a country like Slovakia? Why can't that country have its allegiance to both? And, and, and then what we would expect at the higher level above them is to work it out. You know, um, maybe the EU has something big going on and they need all three battalions. I say go for it. Maybe NATO has something big going on and they need all three battalions. I say go for it. I think we have to be big enough and work closely together enough between the EU and NATO to, to get this right. And, and actually, I've seen it. We just talked about it. The operation off of Somalia, the ongoing operation in Bosnia-Herzegovina. These are examples of how we can work this out. So far, a lot of people seem to be using the terms NATO and EU somewhat interchangeably. It's something we see quite a lot when we look at interviews on the subject. This is probably because many of the nations in the EU are also part of NATO. And the EU, although somewhat less definitively, has a self-defense treaty, much like NATO, where EU nations will be obligated to defend each other if attacked by an outside force. But there are a few oddities here, and I want to talk about one of them with you. As it stands today, Finland is a part of the EU, but not a part of NATO. So if they were invaded by Russia, technically that puts Russia at war with the EU, but not with NATO or the US. What would the US response here be with this oddity between the EU army and NATO in the event of a Russian invasion of Finland? Finland and Sweden, for that matter as well, these are incredible NATO partners. Their interoperability with NATO is amazing. And I don't mean to be critical, but they are more interoperable with NATO than some of our actual NATO allies who are working on it and trying hard and, and investing. But right now, Sweden and Finland, they operate at a very different and a higher level in exercises with NATO. And we have an intense cooperation between those uh, countries and NATO. Now, clearly, Article 5 does not apply, but great nations like the United States and great organizations like NATO have intense relationships with these countries, and, and that's about as far as I can go. So the EU army, in many ways, is seen as a bit of an extension of regional geopolitics. And one of the other issues that branches off this conversation, and a bit of a low-hanging fruit for advocates of a combined European army, are people calling for a massive increase into the European defense industry, so Europe can completely supply, equip, and arm themselves with equipment made right there in Europe. See, at the moment, EU armies using gear from the US, Russia, Germany, France, Italy, UK, etc, 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 which makes things very difficult when you're using bullets from one country and guns from another. So why doesn't Europe simply build a combined defense industry to not only create jobs inside the European Union, but also increase the interoperability across the EU armed forces? As the SACUR, again, it becomes very important early in a U.S. officer's command as the SACUR that they understand that you are not an uh, equipment merchant. Okay, your job is to manage, for me, it was 28 nations and now it's 30, and to understand what those 30 nations need and that there are defense uh, industries in those 30 nations. So the SACUR, I think, has in the past and continues to try to not be an U.S. officer when it comes to matters of 
defense equipment. What the SACUR needs to do and has done and what I did is demand interoperability and to demand interchangeability. And the more ability we can get in these abilities, the better off we're going to be. And um, we have come a long way, but there are still portions of our forces that are not very interoperable because we have still have a lot of old Soviet equipment in some of our forces. And what we need to do is to get away from that and move towards uh, European or American manufactured kit uh, or Canadian for that matter. I'm not being pejorative here. We need to move towards kit that is manufactured to be absolutely interoperable uh, with NATO and to, to that same degree with the EU. We should all be on the same standard. So obviously with everything going on in Ukraine at the moment, there's been a lot of talk about new partners coming into NATO, particularly surrounding Georgia and Ukraine itself. Do you think NATO should be opening their arms and allowing guys like Georgia and Ukraine into the NATO sphere? I am all for both Georgia and Ukraine having MAP. They have some work to do yet, very little basically in Georgia, but still some work to do in Ukraine. But I am absolutely a supporter of MAP for those two countries. Um, Ukraine is in our focus now and our hearts and prayers go out to the people of Ukraine. Uh, and you see the, the fortitude and the bravery of not only Ukraine, but their leaders. Uh, but let me make an example of Georgia that people rarely understand. On a per capita basis, on a per capita basis, Georgia gave more forces to fight in Afghanistan than any other country, to include my own, the United States. On a per capita basis, per capita, Georgia lost more soldiers than any country in Afghanistan, to include my own, the United States. Georgia has demonstrated that it is ready. And uh, I just say again, I am a proponent for MAP, which means there's a plan and there's still some work to do, but there is a process which has started. So obviously during your time in command, you were working very closely with the Turkish forces, with Turkey being such a large partner in NATO. Now with Turkey being part of NATO, but not a part of the EU, do you think they would feel threatened by an EU army building up on their doorstep? Well, I, I can't speak for Turkey. Here's what I'd like to say about Turkey. Uh, young Philip Breedlove has been going to Turkey since the mid eighties. And, and I have spent many a day, week and month on Inzerlik Air Base and working with great Turkish partners and, and seeing that on the ground, the two militaries, there's not any drama. Rather than, uh, uh, sir, rather than guess how they would react to all of these things, what we want to do is continue to try to bring Turkey towards us to be uh, uh, the same NATO partner and EU, um, uh, not partner, but EU aspirant that, that they could be and help them as they work through these internal leadership issues that they have. I remind you that inside of NATO, we, you know, Turkey hasn't kicked us out of their country yet. In NATO's history, 
we had a country kick us out of their nation. So it hasn't gotten to that point yet with Turkey. And we still have time to repair and refit and refurbish the relationships that we need with this great ally. So Turkey's a little bit different in this matter as it is already inside NATO. But if countries that have a somewhat less than perfectly democratic leadership or have been combative with NATO over the years look to join NATO, would NATO be amenable to allowing them in? So for example, let's take Serbia, a very close ally of Russia and someone NATO has been in direct conflict in over the years. If Belgrade was to come to NATO tomorrow and ask for membership into the organization, how would NATO respond? So I think you've made an assumption about Serbia that NATO wouldn't want them. I don't rule out any country that legitimately, honestly, and earnestly turns towards the West and wants to be a part of the West. Now, clearly, you and I understand that that's not where Serbia is now. But again, I think nations have the sovereign right to associate the way they want to associate. And if Serbia, especially in light of what they're seeing going on in Ukraine, if Serbia was to say, whoops, we need to rethink our strategic orientation, and tomorrow they were to begin to orient and turn to the West and shun the ways of a nation that is invading other European nations, uh, I wouldn't rule them out like you have. I, I believe that nations have a sovereign right to associate as they want, and no other nation has the right to veto that. So what is the US Army's policy when it comes to a European army coming about? Is it something that's been consistent over the years, or does it change from administration to administration or leadership to leadership? I can't, uh, again, can't answer for them. I, I do believe that, that the US sees their primary investment in Europe as NATO, but I do believe that our nation will work with anyone. And I think that if the EU were to develop, further develop its military capability along the lines that I discussed before, uh, that the U.S. would welcome that. I mean, we welcome, you know, uh, people always focus on Article 5. But if you really look at the articles, Article 3 is incredibly important. And Article 3, in my in my parlance, is I say it this way, defense begins at home. At home. Article 3 says that a nation should invest in its own ability to defend itself and invest in capabilities to contribute to the, the defense of the rest of the alliance. And so I think if the U.S. sees nations that are doing that, no matter whether they are in the you are in NATO or in the EU, we're going to be happy about that. If European nations are investing in their own capability to defend, that's a good thing. We don't draw the line whether they're inside of NATO or not. So I think that the U.S., again, I can't speak for politicians. That's not what I do. But I think the U.S. would welcome nations, whether they're in or out of NATO, when they invest in their own defense. So as much as the concept of a European army has been on the table for a very long time, it's Russia's invasion of Ukraine that has brought this right to the forefront of everyone's mind now. How do you think the invasion of Ukraine will shape this conversation going forward? 
So as we started our conversation, I believe that uh, Ukraine more more aptly said or appropriately said Russia's illegal and immoral invasion of Ukraine. I think it's awakened uh, NATO yet again. I think that the first two times that Russia invaded Ukraine in 14, there was a first wake-up call. And, and as you saw uh, in the Wales-Warsaw summit uh, and those that followed, uh, NATO started making some very important changes to its readiness and the way that it uh, organizes and prepares for combat if it has to. And so uh, I think now we see yet again a stronger wake-up call. And so I think that the, the NATO nations and, frankly, Euro European Union nations are looking at this with horror. And I think it's once again reorienting us that we do not have a partner in Russia. We have an enemy in Russia. And we need to be prepared to face that enemy. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It's hard to understand how much Ukraine has changed the mindset in a lot of these countries. If you'd come to me a year ago and told me that Germany would be rearming, Finland and Sweden are making moves to join NATO, and Russian energy is being sanctioned coming into Europe, I would have raised an eyebrow or two. But here we are. A new phase in Europe. One where the lines of the map no longer seem so solid. So how will Europe respond? Is this common enemy the thing that will bring them together? Or has the illusion of continental stability finally been shattered? Well, to answer that, we turn to our second guest. Part two, a house divided. So I think the EU army has become a bit of a stand-in for a broader debate. And um, because we're not really sure what we're talking about when we're talking about an EU army, it allows people to rely on their own interpretation. And I think if we wanna um, be generous, uh, the EU army often comes up in the context of uh, people who want the EU to take on a greater defense role and take on greater responsibility in the world. If we want to be a little bit less generous, <laughs> then we realize that uh, 
the EU army for now is, has always been a little bit of a pipe dream, largely because there hasn't been political will by member states to deploy their troops together in places, even though that debate is becoming a little bit more interesting uh, over the last few months, we've seen a few new uh, initiatives and proposals how member states might deploy together. Sophia Besch is a senior researcher at the Centre for European Reform and an expert on the political and military interplay between the EU nations. We're thrilled to have her join us today. So I think um, we need to talk about Ukraine and we also need to talk about Afghanistan when we uh, are talking about the EU army discussion because those two crises have really had a, an impact on this conversation, rightly so. So um, if we begin with uh, Afghanistan last summer, uh, the withdrawal and the evacuation um, that really left a lot of EU member states reeling from uh, how reliant they were on the United States Armed Forces, uh, how they were really unable to uh, do the evacuation themselves, remain in Afghanistan without US support. This is something that we've known for a long time. We like the strategic enablers. Afghanistan was another wake-up call in that direction and has led to renewed calls for greater European military cooperation. If we then jump ahead, what is it, six months, nine months to the Ukraine crisis, um, which is obviously a very different beast, you know, we're, we're looking at collective defense, territorial defense now, rather than crisis management in the EU neighborhood, uh, traditionally a NATO task, and we see how much NATO has taken uh, militarily the lead in this crisis, you know, calls for an EU army uh, don't really resonate right now. The EU instead has taken uh, other roles in the military sphere through, um, you know, equipping Ukraine with uh, military assistance, uh, more defense investment, but really an additional supportive role to NATO um, in the context of the Ukraine crisis. So before jumping into a conversation about a complete overhaul of the entire armed forces of Europe, let's start a bit smaller scale. So the EU has done combined forces work between themselves and NATO off the coast of Somalia in the past. So is this a model going forward? Could we see the EU creating a few small divisions from across Europe to run crisis management or even peacekeeping operations inside Africa? Uh, so I think the idea of a European army led either by Germany, sometimes you hear that it's it's led by Brussels, by the Commission. It's a little bit of a, of a scapegoat and um, is often used in a Eurosceptic, uh, Germany-sceptic context. I don't think we are at any risk of that becoming a reality anytime soon. I mean, you'd need, if you just think through this concept of, um, you know, the 27 member states, um, their armed forces under the command of, what would it be, the European Parliament? <laughs> we, we're not there yet in terms of the, the democratic structures in the EU. Germany, for its part, um, we have a, a parliamentary army, so we need the approval of our own Bundestag for any uh, armed forces deployments. We, we couldn't really imagine uh, doing that through the EU. So I don't think that um, that idea of a, of a unified European armed forces uh, is going to happen anytime soon. Now, what is more interesting are those sort of smaller modular forces. And uh, you may know, a lot of your listeners may know that for a long time, uh, we've had the EU battle groups. So those are groups of 1,500 troops 
which were created, I think, uh, around 2005, 2007. They've been fully operational since then. And they have never been used <laughs> because member states have not been able to agree on uh, using them. There has never been the political will to go there. Um, Post-Afghanistan, there's now uh, an initiative in the EU to sort of update uh, these network groups. We, we call it a rapid deployment capacity now. The idea is to have uh, groups of, of 5,000 troops or more, um, a bit larger with standby deployment and follow-on forces. There's a lot of questions still over uh, the details of what that might look like, the operational scenarios in which those uh, groupings might be deployed, and whether, again, uh, member states will actually uh, demonstrate the political will to deploy these groups. But that, I think, is a more uh, realistic scenario. Um, it comes down to, as I said, political will and the decision-making structures in the EU. Currently, even though a lot of uh, policy fields in the EU are supranationalized. Uh, foreign policy, defense policy is still intergovernmental and relies on unanimous decision making among member states. Uh, so for now, even one veto would uh, prevent the deployment of such a troop. There's a couple of proposals on how we could streamline that decision making um, through qualified majority voting or through enabling a group of member states to go forward um, without needing the approval of all of them. You know, those are sort of the the questions, the areas, the proposals that I am watching. Um, and that is a more realistic scenario than I think the European Armed Forces. So can you explain why the polling with the concept of an EU army seems quite different to the local polling about the approval of NATO? For instance, you have France, who the polling indicates is very pro-EU army, whereas other countries like Latvia and Poland, who are very, very pro-NATO, seem to be anti-EU army. Can you elaborate a bit for us on why there is this dynamic between an EU army and NATO inside some of these NATO countries? I think you're absolutely right that the division that we're going to have to overcome is this idea of EU versus NATO, because it's a single set of forces for a lot of the countries that are in those two organizations. We really can't afford um, duplication. We can't afford competition between the two organizations. Um, European capabilities just uh, don't allow for that. And so we are going to have to come to an agreement to a division of labor between the two organizations that allows Europe to you know, step up uh, to the plate on defense, grow up on defense, become a little bit more independent from the US in the sense of um, taking a greater share of the burden in the transatlantic relationship. So the fear um, on the side of Central and Eastern European countries, but also Germany and, and the United States has always been that by pursuing uh, greater defense efforts through the European Union, we are undermining NATO, duplicating NATO. Um, and the EU army has become one, if you will, symbol of that debate. In recent years, European strategic autonomy has become another symbol of that debate. Again, uh, an idea and a term where a lot of people understand lots of different things. Um, and it's been sort of a very, a very controversial debate. Overcoming that um, juxtaposition of EU versus NATO, I think, has to be our goal. And 
recently um, something that has come out of recent EU and NATO documents, including joint documents by the two organizations, is that we could um, envision a, a sort of burden sharing where NATO is looking more at collective defense, territorial defense, and the EU is looking more at uh, crisis management in its neighborhood, including in Africa. The question here, of course, is, you know, under the impression of Afghanistan and Mali, is crisis management, uh, does crisis management have a future at all? And again, under the impression of the current Ukraine war, is territorial defense and collective defense going to become much more important than it has been in recent years? Why not at least pick some of the low-hanging fruit around this subject and boost up a native European defense industry? Build up a European Armed Forces tank, a rifle, a fighter jet, something you can mass-produce for all of the European armies to increase interoperability whilst boosting their own economies. What's holding something like that back? If the goal is uh, European defense and um, more military integration among EU member states. I think you're completely right that the defense industrial uh, part of it is is hugely relevant. We have so many different weapon systems um, between the 27 EU member states and the UK, which is no longer an EU member states, but should really be thought uh, alongside uh, this conversation because it is such an important military actor in Europe. That uh, integration there is not only from a cost perspective incredibly useful but obviously also for joint training and and joint deployment purposes and there we have seen some efforts uh, in recent years led by the commission to try and integrate the defense planning capability planning of eu member states a little bit more through financial incentives for example through the european defense fund or through PESCO, which is a permanent structured cooperation, which it doesn't really matter what it stands for. The idea is that member states work together um, on capability development and the EU gives them financial incentives to do that. Because as you know, of course, uh, European capability projects between several member states uh, usually take a long time, get quite expensive, um, suffer from delays, which is why member states so often resort to simply purchasing capabilities off the shelf from the US, for example, which fills capability gaps faster, but then uh, often can lead to this kind of hodgepodge of uh, different military capabilities in Europe. So there are attempts to integrate the European defense market more, to consolidate the European defense industry. Certainly those questions will become more important in the uh, months and years to come now that many member states, including Germany, have announced their plans to spend more. It'll be really interesting to see if they set a focus on European capabilities or uh, if they will buy their capabilities uh, outside of Europe. You know, we'll we'll have to see where they set their where they set their priorities. But certainly, that should be, I think, an important leg of European defense policy. So obviously, it's a bit out of the purview of today's conversation. But if we're talking about long-term combined arms policies in the European Union. After the complete shocks of the Russian sanctions and how they've affected the gas markets, do you think we ever would see a combined energy policy from the European Union? Obviously, the two policy fields are not directly linked to defense policy and energy policy. They are uh, connected in the sense that um, we can look at them through the lens of European resilience, European sovereignty, 
um, European security of supply, right? The need for Europe to become more sovereign, more autonomous, uh, more independent, both in its defense policy and in its energy policy. And uh, European leaders are certainly making that connection. If you look, for example, at President Macron's uh, whose country currently holds the, the EU presidency, his demands for a more sovereign Europe always include energy policy, they include digital policy, they include defense policy. Now, I don't think that one can be a, a backdoor, if you will, to the other. Uh, I think what we could <laughs> what we could envision is a sort of uh, federal Europe, right? Uh, a truly supranational uh, EU, and in such a European Union, those uh, policy fields would also become more supranational. I really don't think that that is a realistic uh, prospect at the minute, um, but I do think that there is a growing awareness among member states, particularly the, in the context of the current crisis, that even if they are not going to give up all responsibility and all national authority to Brussels, even if they're not going to cede their national sovereignty in these incredibly sensitive uh, policy areas, there is a greater recognition and a greater willingness to work together and an acknowledgement that um, national level initiatives just won't have as much impact as uh, working through the EU or for that matter, working uh, through NATO, right? One of the major factors shaping the membership of NATO is the prerequisite of a country not to have territorial disputes before joining NATO. This means that Abkhazia and South Ossetia and Georgia, Transnistria, Moldova, Luhansk, Donetsk and Crimea and Ukraine, and Northern Cyprus and Cyprus all keep these countries from joining NATO. But as we see with Cyprus, it doesn't keep them from joining the EU. Knowing NATO's close defense of the EU, could admission into the EU be a backdoor to NATO protection for states with territorial disputes like Georgia, through a clause in the EU constitution that provides collective defence in the event of a nation invading the EU countries? You bring up uh, this uh, mutual assistance clause of the EU, which sort of is the clause in the EU treaties, uh, Article 42.7, that comes closest to NATO's Article 5. Um, the responsibility of member states to assist each other in a crisis situation. And that is a very controversial clause um, that has been invoked once but hasn't led to military action. And that comes because it comes so close to NATO territory, a lot of member states are very hesitant to double down on that because they do think that NATO uh, covers, you know, that that part of the European uh, security and defense architecture. Of course, uh, there are questions by those countries that are in the EU but not in NATO that might uh, have a greater interest in this class, like Finland and Sweden. But uh, as this recent crisis uh, in Ukraine has demonstrated once more, these countries that are not in NATO but in the EU are not currently calling for uh, you know, the EU to strengthen its mutual assistance clause. Instead, there is a national debate in these countries whether or not to join NATO. And I think that tells you everything you need to know about where to which uh, security and defense organizations countries are currently looking uh, when it comes to mutual assistance, when it comes to mutual defense. And so that question doesn't really become uh, relevant in the context of uh, an EU army. It was only four years ago in 2018 
when we were reading stories of Trump considering withdrawing the US from NATO, calling the organization obsolete and a relic of the Cold War. Obviously, things are different now with the current administration in the White House, but there is an election in 2024 and Trump is still the Republican frontrunner. So if we do see a return to this kind of discussion, the talks of NATO without the US, would the EU have to quickly pivot to an EU army strategy? Uh, I think that the current uh, invasion and the war uh, is has certainly revitalized the transatlantic relationship. Um, but the fact that NATO has proven to be so effective and important in this crisis is also down to the um, president currently in the White House and the current U.S. administration that is so. Uh, involved in, in Europe that believes in the transatlantic relationship that is committed to NATO and that is committed to Article 5 and, and everything that comes with it. You know, the European leaders are thanking their lucky stars every day that it is the current uh, U.S. president and that they can rely on U.S. leadership uh, within NATO to tackle this crisis. Because, as I've, as I've said previously, you know, uh, once again, Europeans are very aware of the fact that they cannot currently uh, take care of their own security and defense without U.S. support, without U.S. leadership, political leadership, but also without uh, U.S. troops and, and U.S. strategic enablers. So we have to, of course, uh, consider the possibility that uh, U.S. leadership is going to swing back the other way again and will have a president in the White House who's less amenable to cooperation with the Europeans. And that makes this uh, conversation over a stronger European defense capability um, more relevant. I think more relevant than ever because we now have, you know, it's about two more years of uh, this current president and then we might have another U.S. election. So we should try to build up the structures uh, in these two more years of grace period that we've been given uh, to try and build up Europe to become uh, more responsible. Um, it's obviously going to take more than two years just on the capability front. I mean, even if we start investing more money now, as Germany and others have announced, building up the capabilities, filling, filling the capability gaps that have been developing over decades is going to take decades, you know, um, starting if you look at some of the scenarios, 2030, 2035 is when we might start to be able to fill some of the crucial capability gaps. That being said, the answer um, isn't necessarily that we would need to replace NATO, right? I mean, again, there are so many good proposals for a stronger European pillar in NATO, countries taking more responsibility within the transatlantic alliance. Uh, we, it would, from my perspective, be um, unnecessary for us to try to rebuild all the structures, uh, all the trust, all the command and control structures that already uh, exist within NATO in the EU. Instead, I think we should, um, as I said, have a clearer division of labor, labor between NATO and the EU, have the EU fully live up to its added value when it comes to European defense industrial cooperation, and then build up the European pillar in NATO so that NATO in future crises could uh, you know, live up to its promise even without a US administration that is as involved as the current one is. Do you think this invasion of Ukraine has shifted the trajectory of Europe away from Brexit and Frexit and towards a more united continent? 
That's a really interesting question. So there's obviously one extreme is countries leaving the EU, um, but it doesn't take them leaving for the EU to be um, divided and unable to act as one. Uh, it's enough to have you know, spoiler countries that would veto important decisions. And the EU has suffered from this time and time again over the uh, last decades or so, especially in its foreign security and defense policy. This crisis is really uh, shown us uh, EU more united and more able to act quickly than a lot of us would have expected it to. But that is also because this crisis is very specific, right? It's a crisis in our direct neighborhood. Um, it's a crisis that is very um, clear in terms of who is the aggressor, um, who needs our help. Uh, it's very immediate. It's really European citizens and, and public opinion is very clear that uh, Europeans, uh, European leaders need to take on a role in this crisis. That might change in the months to come as uh, the sacrifices for European uh, publics grow, you know, as perhaps our, our energy prices rise or as uh, just our attention uh, moves elsewhere. It's up to European political leaders to um, keep European publics engaged and keep working uh, through the EU to keep up the, the unified effort that we've seen in, in recent weeks. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Throughout history, it seems the only times the Europeans all put aside their centuries-old quarrels and work in a mutual manner is when an outside force poses a threat towards Europe. The Mongols united all of remaining Europe in a single cause in the 13th century. Napoleon in the 19th and the Soviet threat in the East united the West in the 20th. Now that this threat in the East seems to have re-emerged in the minds of Western European planners, will we see a much more focused and unified Europe standing tall beneath the banner of Brussels? Or is it naive to think that an invasion of Ukraine is enough to undo 2,000 years of history. Well, for that, we turn to our third guest. Part 3. Drums from the East. Well, there are fundamental problems with European unity. Uh, this, for the moment, has overarched it, partly because of the threat of the Russians, also because of Germany did not want to defy the United States. So it was a situation where for the moment it's there. But the underlying tensions within Europe will reemerge. Uh, the fundamental question of where does political power, economic power rest and these things, they're real issues. They, they have to be settled. And like all good politicians, they've been punted for a long time. So I don't think we have seen a permanent shift in Europe. George Friedman is a geopolitical forecaster and strategist specializing in international affairs. He's also the founder and chairman of the think tank Geopolitical Futures and is one of the most respected futurists and authors in the geopolitical realm. I've been a fan of George's books for a long time, so it's great to have him on the program today. Well, I mean, 
NATO is not Europe. NATO is more than anything in the United States. Uh, according to NATO, as of today, over 100,000 American troops are in Europe. Uh, the fact is that the United States is an overarching presence in NATO. Okay, And so we have to really think about Europe in two different ways. Uh, the economic model, which is this European Union, the political military model, which is NATO, but NATO and the EU are very different entities. So you may well find a greater level of cooperation on NATO, but not on uh, the, in European Union issues. So the idea of a European army has been talked about for a very long time, but what has actually prevented it from coming into reality? The European Union is not a nation state. It's merely a treaty organization. And as a treaty organization, it has sovereign states who have very different views on economics. So when you think about an army is, uh, we don't think of generals. They're nice to have and necessary. It's a 20-year-old kid and a 30-year-old sergeant out in the rifle range prepared to go to combat, prepared to risk their lives, prepared even to die. That's very hard to do in the abstract. If you're a Dane, you may do, do that for Denmark. If you're Australian, you may do that for Australia. But for an, a treaty organization, not so much. And one of the problems that I have with the European approach is they're talking about how to structure the larger structure, the command structure. They're talking about all that. I think about a 20-year-old kid and how do you get him to do this? Who's he doing it for? And in Europe, there are many different nations, and they're not necessarily friendly to each other, and they have histories against each other. So that 20-year-old kid and a sergeant, who are they going into battle for? And that can't be something as abstract and bloodless as an economic um, treaty. Which countries do you think are going to be more likely to push for a European army, and which countries do you think are more likely to push against it? Well, among other things, these countries, not too distant past, fought vicious wars with each other. Uh, the French don't forget the Germans. The Germans themselves try to forget themselves. The Latvians are butchered. So there's a history here. And you're taking these diverse countries and putting them together. And one of the reasons the EU exists is to try to create a unity in Europe to prevent future wars. And that's quite explicitly stated. So these are different countries and they have different interests and different moral values. And they really don't trust each other. For the time being under certain circumstances, sure. But they all remember how rapidly uh, things deteriorated. So you don't have a common interest because there is not a common interest. But there's a common distrust in many cases, not universally, not everywhere, but enough so that constructing some sort of united force would demand knowing who the commander is, who has the right to deploy that force, who has the right to fire a general who's not doing well or recruit more people, and no country fully trusts the others to do this. So right now, the Europeans have the luxury of sitting under the U.S.'s umbrella of protection. But if the 2024 election or a subsequent election brings about a President Trump or a President Tucker Carlson or someone of that variety, 
and we see renewed talk of American isolationism, will Europe be forced to put their differences aside and travel down the path of a united European army? When the United States wanted to withdraw troops from Germany, the Germans bitterly objected. We had 40,000 troops there. And the question here was, why had the Europeans abandoned NATO? Now, that's not it's usually the other way. But as was pointed out, not merely by Trump, NATO had an obligation to maintain a force to be part of NATO, and they didn't do that. Uh, the Germans were particularly uh, remiss in maintaining their force. Uh, so to be a part of NATO, you had to have a military. That's kind of the foundation of military alliance. The American view is that although the United States has been accused continually of you know, abandoning NATO, it was the NATO that did. And right now, you know, even if you think of a United Army, how big can it be? I mean, we're talking about the American Army, the American military of about 1.3 million people, okay? The Chinese Army, even larger. The Russian Army, mysterious at the moment. But is if Europe wants to have an army to play in the world we live in, it has to make a huge investment. It has refused to make that investment in NATO. So will it make an investment in a force that doesn't have the United States in it? Because that's a basic difference. Uh, this idea of the United European Army is uh, NATO without the United States. The American view of NATO is that the Europeans haven't kept their word, their obligation. Their obligation is to have a military force so that the United States doesn't have to be in Europe. The United States was in Europe uh, to block the Soviets during the Cold War. There is or was no threat. Maybe it has reemerged and the US is redeploying. But the United States doesn't understand why when the Kosovo War broke out and everything else, American aircraft were used to bomb them, not European aircraft. So I think the American view would be very, my own view is that the Europeans haven't anteed up. They haven't played by the rules. Uh, but at the same time, they've tried to portray it as the United States not doing so. And so there's a lot of tension there. But I think on the whole, the United States has no desire to control Europe, couldn't control Europe even if it wanted to. And we'd be very happy to see Europe without us taking the risks on the eastern frontier now. With Turkey being a part of NATO and not a part of the European Union, how do you think they would react to an emerging European army? Well, I mean, if it's going to be a European army without NATO, then there's a question is how does this European army handle the Black Sea? So Romania is a critical country there. Bulgaria is a critical country there. The Black Sea is an important place and you don't get to it without Turkey. Also, the major airfield in Turkey, Incirlik, which is a NATO airfield, is superb for hitting targets, let's say, in Ukraine and also in the Middle East. So if you are going to have a military, you are going to have members that you need for military reasons, even if you dislike their politics. And this is one of the things that Europe has avoided. It, it could sit in judgment of Turkey and not needing them for a military purpose. But if you're going to have an alliance that's going to be defending uh, the countries of the Black Sea, which you'd have to be doing, you're going to have to make a deal with Turkey. 
And these are the things that the Europeans have systematically avoided doing. The United States having the military had to do it. And if they form their own military, there's going to be military requirements imposed on them. What about these nations like Georgia that have territorial disputes that keep them from joining NATO? Do you think them joining the EU could be a backdoor into NATO protection? Well, that, that standard by NATO is a bit of a cover. Hungary and Romania have significant disputes over the exact border. Both are members of NATO. One might say that the British have an ongoing despite dispute with elements in Scotland. Well, that's a territorial debate. And they're members of NATO. NATO uses that as an excuse to keep out people they don't really want in. But if it turned out that uh, France had a real dispute with Belgium, they would manage to live with it. So I, I don't take that rule very seriously because the people they excluded have not been, they didn't want them anyway, and that was their excuse. Many members have territorial disputes with each other. Well, what about countries that are already in that position, like Finland, which is a member of the European Union, but not a member of NATO? If the Russians were to carry out an attack on Finland, do you think it would be the Europeans or NATO that would come to their defense? So the first question would be, would the European army have spent the amount of money, the vast amount of money that would have to be to be able to intervene? But I would hope that it would be the Europeans that would take that role. I suspect that in the end, it would be the Americans. So the real questions when we start talking about an army is we have to start talking about capability. We have to talk about missions and we have to talk about money. So the idea of a European army is interesting, but before we can talk about that intervening in Finland, we really have to talk about what kind of weapons are they going to have? What kind of logistics are they going to have? Um, what language are going to command, where they command? You know, all these things have to be answered before we can deal with that. So languages, communication, who's in command, let's put that all aside for a second. And even just look at supplying these forces. Could the Europeans actually even create a domestic arms industry capable of supplying a universal tank or universal plane or even universal rifle across the European armies, opposed to the hodgepodge system they have at the moment? As the Americans have demonstrated, it could be very profitable, not just for the government or for the company, but for the general economy. So, for example, the microchip, uh, which is so critical to us, was invented by DOD, Department of Defense. Uh, the um, Internet was. So it becomes a very strong power in creating technologies, starting as military and then becoming civilians. So it has a value. But the problem is we have a vast military industry with people well-trained to do the jobs they have. Europe doesn't have those people, or not enough of them, put it this way. The French have, the British certainly have enough. They could do it, right? But there's a generation of training is going to be necessary, that if you're going to be designing radar systems and selling them, you're going to have to have knowledge of the subject. Uh, warfare is esoteric in the sense that it has many technologies that are not well known outside of the military. We have in the United States, and China has too, a very large culture of military, you know, trained by the military that sometimes comes into the civilian world, but mostly stays inside. 
Europe doesn't have a large group of that. So the first thing they would have to do is not decide to have an industry, but decide how they're going to train uh, the people who are going to be working in it. It's, it's, it's a daunting task. So in the lead up to this conflict in Ukraine, Russia was using its energy as an almost diplomatic weapon against Europe and seems to have demonstrated to most of the world how energy can be used to manipulate geopolitics. With this in mind, do you think Europe would ever look down the road of a unified energy policy across the European Union? The EU was intended to be a win-all game. Many times it becomes a zero-sum game where different parties compete with each other. This is natural among different nations who have different needs and different wants. So creating that unity is very hard on the economic scale. On the cultural scale, it's extremely difficult. Uh, you know, if Italy's invaded, you know, how eager are the Danes to go and die for them? And th this, is, this is the basic problem. Europe has not faced the fact that there's no, no such thing as a Europe. There is a European continent and a European Union, but there is no overarching loyalty between the countries. So can they you know, do it and work together? Can they unite? It's hard to imagine how. Some very difficult decisions have to be made. I get the sense when Macron says this, he knows that. But he wants in principle to reach the point without any real expectation that the vast reworking of the European economy and mindset uh, will be reached. Is there some sort of historical event or policy change standing in the way of Europe going down this path? Is there something here that could change that would actually make this viable? Put it very simply, you can't have this army without the British. The British are the largest force. They control sea lanes. They're very important. You have lost Britain in this European Union. You have to convince Britain to come back in. You also have to convince the Italians not to hate the French as much as they do. So there is real dislike of each other. Uh, I was born in Hungary. Uh, it was the neighbor of Romania. Romania was uh, a country that took land from Hungary at some point. My mother would spit on the ground every time the word Romanian was said. And this was years after she left Hungary. I mean, Americans, Australians, I think, really underestimate the underlying bitterness in some parts of, these, of the world. When you meet the academics, when you meet uh, journalists, when you meet business people, it's not there. They have a different value. When you go down and meet the people who just make a living and live, and live each other, there's malice there that uh, is well known in the country, but not particularly, uh, foreigners are not very aware of it. It seems like it should be working together but even a country like Hungary and Romania, whatever the government says, or the academics says, those two don't like each other. They don't want to be in the same unit. What about even small scale? One group of hand-selected 1,500 men who can go out and be an expeditionary force on behalf of Europe and show a united European front. What's stopping that from going ahead? Essentially, the Europeans regard the US Army as theirs. In other words, it's not theirs but they can count on the United States having an interest in protecting Europe. Why have a show of force, which is going to be insufficient anyway, 
uh, when you have the United States. So, and this is one of the elements of unhappiness in the United States. The Europeans know that if Ukraine is overrun and Russian forces sweep into Poland, the United States will be dealing with that. So the, the Europeans have created a world in which they don't feel that they have to be responsible for their own defense. And that's why they haven't, you know, created a force. Britain is an exception, but it's very close to the United States in most ways than to the continent. France has a force. Uh, it's a small, it's by American standards, a small one. But other countries simply haven't had it. So I'll, I'll give you a fundamental difference. If you ever come to the United States, you'll go to the airport to board your plane and you'll hear the announcer saying, flight so-and-so is boarding now, we welcome first class and military. In other words, in the United States, the military is respected enough to be ushered onto the plane. I've had two children in the military and a son-in-law. It's very common to have that. In Europe, that's fairly rare. So you don't have a military culture right now. The military is not particularly almost worshipped, if not the commanders or the president, but the military is. These things uh, aren't there. So the things that have to be built are not howitzers and attack aircraft. You do need them. You need a culture that values the military that respects the soldier. Without that, why should that person go on? Um, and this is, I think, Europe's basic problem. To launch a fleet, you have to have people who want to sail and be trained and everything else. And Europe doesn't have the culture of rewarding the military because it doesn't want to be militaristic. And I understand that entirely, but it's hard to have those things. And you have the United States to depend on, because in the end, whether we like it or not, we will come in to stop the Russians. In 2022, I do agree with that statement, but frankly, can the Europeans rely on America forever? Should they be preparing for a, a post-US intervention era? American politics is theatrical and can't always be taken seriously. But you're absolutely right in the core question. You can't rely on the United States. No nation survives forever. No nation remains oriented as it is. And very frankly, it's irresponsible for the Americans to write not a blank check, but a very large check to defend Europe when the Europeans can do so themselves. So the danger there is that the Americans will simply say, look, Europe, your gross domestic product is slightly larger than that of the United States. Russia, Germany, you are the fourth largest uh, econo economy in the world. There's absolutely no you reason why you should pretend that this is 1955 and the United States must come to your defense. You're quite capable of building a force that's effective. And that's the danger that will happen, which came close. And it was written off by the Europeans as Trump. It really wasn't. It was much deeper. Uh, it was a feeling of exploitation by Europe of U.S. resources. So I think the Europeans will have to deal with it, but I suspect they will build armies. They'll build Polish armies and they'll build German armies and Italian armies because that's what Europe is. These are the countries.
if we do start to see all these European countries militarizing again, do you think it is a risk of inter-European wars? You know, let's say between Romania or Hungary or, you know, Balkans flaring up again. The history of Europe is the history of warfare. It's one of the bloodiest regions in the world. Uh, for since 1945 till 1990s, it was peaceful. Then there was a horrible bloodletting in Yugoslavia. Uh, people think of uh, the Balkans as not part of Europe somehow, but it was a true European war, a bloodbath. So you have a continent here with a history of extraordinary violence, bad memories of each other. You've had a period in which that hasn't happened, but the idea that the history of Europe has been suspended is like uh, the end of history. It's an illusion. This is Europe. The malice is there. The various differences are there. I have no idea when it would break out, but about 100,000 people died in the Yugoslav Wars. And that's a European war. So the question here is, when is the next European war? And I can't tell you, but it'd be a bad bet to think that one of the bloodiest regions in the world will suddenly permanently turn Pacific. Particularly before the invasion of Ukraine, do you think there was a worry that Europe was beginning to become a sideshow as America and the rest of the world pivots towards Asia being the dominant theater? Well, I mean, half the Europeans I know, and I go to Europe quite a bit, think the United States has no business intruding in European affairs. The other half are worried that it'll stop intruding in European affairs. So when you speak of Europe, you have to, there's no one view of it. Um, as to the Chinese, there is in Europe a fear of it and, it's, and a kind of malicious happiness that they think that the U.S. is being unseated. A great deal of when we talk to the Europe, when I talk to Europeans has to do oddly with the United States uh, and much less about each other right now. So would, are they frightened about China? Ultimately, no. They see business opportunities there. Uh, do they see China overcoming the United States? The answer is yes, and they're quite wrong in that, but they take pleasure in it. And, um, you know, China's far away, and it's a tremendous opportunity to sell something, more likely buy something. If the European Union were to combine all of its countries into the Federated States of Europe, it would produce a country with a larger GDP than that of the US or China, and really make Europe a behemoth on the world stage. With the world seeming to become more bipolar between Beijing and Washington, do you think Europe would ever embrace the idea of federating itself to launch itself back into the global driver's seat, rather than sitting on the sidelines as a partner of the US? I think the answer would be, to stop believing you can have your cake and eat it too. Make a decision. If you want to be a united country, you have an army and you're going to have to suppress nationalist impulses and you will have to treat the military differently than you do now. If you're not willing to do that, then you will have to face you know, the consequences. But the problem is in Europe that their political structure is strange. I mean, if you think American political structure is strange, strange. The Europeans wanted both. They want to have both aspects in their hands. They don't want to pay the price for either. 
So the real European decision is, will there be a government that tells the people the reality that they live in and a people who will respond graciously to the idea of massive tax increases and their children joining the military? So I doubt that. And this is Europe's weakness and it's long weakness. It tells noble tales to itself that have nothing to do with reality. As much as high-minded rhetoric and statistical data may change the minds of some, to others, their guts will orientate their worldview every time. A united European army, as nice as it seems, will hit roadblocks almost immediately. But that's to be expected from an organization used as shorthand for most as a confusing bureaucracy. Even if we were to look at some of the easier projects, like trying to combine the European defense industries then you'd be forcing poorer nations like Bulgaria to be buying top-of-the-line tanks and planes and the upkeep costs that come with that when their much older equipment still serves its purpose and their money could be probably better spent elsewhere. Even if you were to form an expeditionary force, even just as a PR exercise to send to Mali to show the world that Europe is united in its peacekeeping operations, people will inevitably die. And when a Danish 18-year-old dies in the deserts of Mali, the blame will be thrown at Brussels. Even to try and integrate the armies under a central command, there are so many hurdles to figure out. Like what language does your command use? The global second language, English? Well, the UK isn't even in the EU anymore. And what kind of a message would that send from the EU? What about French? Well, the Italians would rather see all their pizzas strewn with pineapples before giving their orders in French. What about German? Well, that brings up some pretty uneasy memories for nations like Lithuania and Poland. This exact issue was one of the major hamperings of the Austro-Hungarian armies in World War I, where a nation made up of multiple languages, ethnicities, and cultural groups found it very hard to integrate their command structures. High-minded rhetoric and economic models are absolutely great, until the moment you have a German peacekeeper shoot a Catalonian protester under orders from a Romanian general desperate not to give the Hungarians and Transylvania any ideas of breakaway in his home country. Because at that point, 2,000 years of history, wars, and indifference will be sure to rear its ugly head. We have a long way to go before a Hungarian will introduce himself as a European before he introduces himself as a Hungarian. But without major reform, can Europe really sustain its position as a great power? whilst being only one bad French or Italian election from the shattering of the European experiment. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week. This episode was a really interesting one for us to put together and something we've actually had requests for for almost two years now. So the people who have been waiting two years for this one, I really do hope it met your expectations. The show has already kicked off this year with a bit of a raring start, and we're even busier than ever, creating extra analysis of written pieces on our website, an upcoming special mini-series, more content on our social media, and even more coming up. All of which can be found at our website, theredlinepodcast.com. But if you don't want to miss anything and keep up to date with everything we're up to, you can find all of our links on info on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at theredlinepod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at MikeyLeadOz. 
Oz is in Australia. This episode is dedicated to friend of the show, Lev Goldener, who's the latest Patreon to sign up as of the time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of our listeners like Lev, who donate a small amount of money each month to help us keep this show going, and we cannot thank him enough. So if you feel you could spare a couple of dollars, we would really greatly appreciate it. So Lev, this episode on the feasibility of an EU army is thanks to you. As usual, here are our three book recommendations. The first is The Storm Before the Calm by today's guest, George Friedman, for a look at the upcoming dynamic shifts in the world of geopolitics. The second is Flashpoints, also by George Friedman, for a look at the emerging crises in the heart of Europe. And the third is The New Map by Daniel Jürgen, for a look at how energy policies will increasingly shape many of the conflicts and issues shaping our world today. I want to thank this week's guests, Phil Breedlove, Sophia Besh, and George Friedman. All of you were fantastic to have on the program, and it was an absolutely all-star cast. I also want to thank my staff, Wade McCaw, our incoming producer, Owen Swift, Perry Grace, Daniela Zavella, Andrew Garbery, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Ross Crabtree, our media specialist, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, Nick Much, our field correspondent, as well as Jonah Gunn, our production assistant. I am incredibly proud of the team we have here, and I highly recommend you check out some of the work they've been putting out as well. The Red Light will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening. A good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Red Line podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.